Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. We're talking to people who have had emergencies today in the hangar. So I used to be a well-respected member of the aviation community, and then I started flying to Cirrus and that changed. And all that was great until the engine quit. And all of a sudden I see these explosions and these trees exploding. I'm walking away a better pilot because of this discussion. Welcome to In the Hangar. I'm Christy Wong. And I'm Dan Milliken. Today we're talking emergencies and we have some people who have had real emergencies. On my right, Travis. Travis, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Travis Jay. I uh, work for a Part 142 training provider and a business jet manufacturer. I own a small company that uh, restores light aircraft, particularly vintage uh, beach twins. And I'm currently working on an STC for a cabin lighting system. So a little bit of everything mixed up into a bunch of nothing. Um, married a pilot. Ah. Uh, my wife is a member of the FAST team, which ah. uh, is how I met Tamara and Christy and got here today, I suppose. All right, so Mark, tell us about yourself. I was uh, retired from FedEx last year by age. I retired out of the Navy. Uh, I flew fighters in both the Air Force and the Navy. Oh, wow. And uh, flown general aviation since 1965. Wow. So I've been around for a few years. All right, Tamara? Um, my name's Tamara Griffith, and I have been in aviation since I was born. Didn't know there was any other life. Um, grew up with it with both my parents as pilots and mechanics and aircraft control. I am an aircraft mechanic also. And I'm right now, currently a career flight instructor. I've done a lot of other areas of aviation. But this is what I am, a little of nothing. <laughs> whole bunch of wing nuts. <laughs> That's, yeah, that was my first thing I took apart. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. Um, I mean, really, as a lower time pilot, I've not yet experienced major emergencies in flight. I had a flat nose wheel on landing once, and that's about the extent of my adrenaline rush while flying. So I appreciate you guys sharing your wisdom today. Um, what constitutes an, an emergency for you guys? Wow, well an emergency is any time that you need uh, priority over anything else. So uh, is the engine not working? Is the, the landing gear not working? Are we having a problem where we have potential for catastrophe on top of everything else? Do I have sick passengers? Do I have some kind of uh, fuel critical status? Um, those are kind of the general big things that we talk about, I think, in emergencies. Yeah. I would say the same thing. Sometimes I even, you know, declaring an emergency, even when we think there's a potential for something that's seriously wrong. If you had known that my tire didn't feel right when I landed, you know, declaring that emergency. I've done it several times, you know. Well, I think the, the fear for me is, as also a low-time low pilot, is that, you know, when do you declare emergency? And, you know, am I going to declare emergency too soon? And, and you know, FAA pointing fingers at me and mounds of paperwork versus declaring emergency too late and I'm dead. So there's a balance, and, and as a new pilot, I don't know where to reach that balance. Can we just dispel a rumor just to start with? Yes, yes. please. In this country, there's no paperwork for an emergency. Okay, good. At, at other countries, yeah, like in the Bahamas, you have to fill out a bicycle, car, boat, airplane accident report form. Hmm. It's like well, half a page. And, and to Here, that, and to, I'm glad you said that because um, you know, yours was a low front tire. For me, I had a low voltage while in IFR at night heading towards New York City. That's a good one. So <laughs> I did not, yeah. <laughs> well, I wasn't in the New York airspace yet, but I was, I, I was talking to, I was with, with their center. And um, 
I went ahead and, and immediately diverted to the nearest, uh, there was a Class C that I was 10 miles from. Um, and low voltage, I'd actually had it before, so it didn't scare me. And you know, that's just, I got plenty of battery to last 30 minutes and I'm five minutes from an airport. Mm -hmm. So no big deal, so I just let them know that. And I told them it's not an emergency because my flight instructor during instrument when we had a low voltage had said, make sure you tell them it's not an emergency or you'll have paperwork, you know, yeah, no or whatever. Paperwork. And so I landed and they rolled trucks anyway. They declared emergency and I didn't know that they could do that. They sure can. The taxi and of shame when the fire department <laughs> follows you to the ramp. Well, I yeah. got pictures. Yeah, and yeah we'll yeah. put that up right now. But um, so I got there and, you know, and then I had to fill out. Now the, the fire chief had me, or he asked me some questions and filled some stuff out. Sure. I didn't fill it out. And then um, that was it until two weeks later I get a call from the FISDO for uh, for that area and he just he asked me a question so what was the result and I go into this long spiel about it was the generator bell so planes back in service yep okay that's all I wanted yeah <laughs> so yeah I think the biggest thing is to not worry about the consequences what matters is getting the airplane on the ground safely okay and alerting somebody that you may have a situation like what you're talking about you don't have to declare an emergency but you can certainly let a controller know we have a problem and I need some time to sort it out, call me back, whatever, but don't let them fly your airplane for you. Absolutely. You know? and, and the situation depends upon what kind of airplane you're flying. If you're in a heavy airplane with a crew and the airplane's on autopilot, you have plenty of time to grab a cup of coffee and go through the checklist. If you're in a single <laughs> engine airplane, that's a whole different situation. If you have a fire, you have smoke in the cockpit, that determines well, yeah, cool. your action on what you can do. But even in those situations, you can squawk 7700 immediately, and that's gonna draw some attention to the people, and they're gonna get somebody that's gonna follow you. So you can go on from there. Well, if I'm on flight following, if I'm on IFR and I'm talking to center anyway, do I really need to take the time to squawk 77? I mean, because I'm gonna tell them right off the bat. No. If you've told them, then you've already address the problem. Okay. How does one train for an emergency, really? Like, I mean, during private pilot training, of course, it's, oh, the in, you lost an engine, what do you do, find a field and land? But obviously, as you grow up in the pilot career, there are a lot more things that can go wrong. How do you train for that? I think Travis hit it on the nose. You know, you train in the simulator with as many emergencies as you possibly can. I, did plenty of hours as a sim instructor yeah. myself. We can make you sweat. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, if you're going to make really? a mistake, let's oh, do yes. it in the simulator, and that's where you get your real practice. So really, the best like way to learn is by mistake. You're that's, putting somebody yeah. in the simulator, and oh, no, you lost a wing, go. Like, what, <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah, there's not a lot of work in losing yeah. a wing. You just kind of sit back and watch <laughs> the ride. That's just learning your yeah. spiel, what you're going to say your last, last words. Yeah. <laughs> no, but we, you deal with it, and, and you learn, and, and we always have the ability to uh, critique and uh, anything we do. If we have a, an actual emergency, we can go back and say, hey, how did that go and what did I do right and what didn't I do right? And it can happen internally or it can happen with uh, other people and uh, it just depends in a simulator environment, then yeah, there's eyes watching you all over the place and everything you right. do is critiqued and sometimes harshly and sometimes not harshly enough. But uh, the professionals get a lot more training on that front than the average GA pilot does. And that's something that really is kind of more of a problem, I think. Yeah. Um, for the for the recreational pilot, we just don't don't back up that information very well. So I mean, obviously, you know, as a right now as a GA pilot, 
Um, I practice go-arounds and practice engine-outs and the power off 180s and things like that. But realistically, what can we do as GA pilots to prepare for an emergency or train or practice? Um, I teach my students, play the what-if game. While you're sitting there bored, you know, whether it's in crews, up to, where would I put this plane down? Looking at your various places, how much altitude do I have to lose? How much altitude do I not have to lose? You know, so how far? What you if know, that ox tank doesn't feed? Right. Yeah, you know, what, play the little what if games, and I will tell you through my em few emergencies that I've had in my career, it was other people's stories. So hearing their stories, hearing their critiques, hearing these, you know, breakdowns affected my decision making down the road, and that's where you know those are your practice sessions. All right. So stories. Let's. That's a good segue. Tell me. Uh, we'll, let's go by each one of you. Tell me your uh, story about emergency. Uh, probably the most severe one was when I was flying freight. I had an engine, began to give me problems in flight about 5,000 feet. I was inbound to Austin Bergstrom at the time and it in the clouds and they called zero zero about the same time my engine started coughing and sputtering to the point it was time to shut it down. Okay, so just for those who don't know, what's zero zero? Uh, zero, zero visibility is where basically it's all fog all the way to the ground. You can't see, you can't see your hand in front of your face feeling. <laughs> That's about the easiest way to put it. Uh, I was so intense that it was probably less than zero, zero in my mind. Um, in this case, the engine, I had to shut it down, but it, where these airplanes, it, it was a twin engine aircraft, normally would maintain altitude and continue flying. This one refused. <laughs> so we were slowly in a descent rate. Based on all the calculations we did as pilots, looking at my descent rate, already called my emergency. I'm aiming for the airport that has the, Austin Berkshire has the emergency facilities. I'm not going to make the airport in my, in my glide and everything that I'm doing minimally to try to make this runway. I'm thinking I'm not going to make it that day. And, but amazingly, it decided at the last minute to give me a little bit. What um, happened? Uh, I don't know what happened to the engine. I never learned from maintenance. Um, but it, it kicked back on? No, never quit. It just basically, it got low enough. I think I gained enough Thrust. from the other engine to finally just stop that descent rate and finish the approach. I but should have landed you, in a parking lot. Did you land in zero, zero? Yes. I never officially saw that runway. I felt it, but I did not see it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I now, the, the fire department said they could see my wingtip lights when they went by. Honestly, I never saw anything. But part of that's that focus we get when mm -hmm. we're in an emergency. We can't think beyond literally this little tunnel, that what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I was very focused on putting that thing on something. I didn't know what was below me, but we're going to find out the hard way. <laughs> so right. it was the best landing of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mark, how about you? Well, we're talking about engine failures. I've had eight. Eight? And two were in single engine airplanes. Oh. And both of those were at 500 feet. Whoa. And wow. you don't have a lot of time to think about it. You just fly the airplane and put it on the ground. And I will say that out of all the engine failures, none of them were catastrophic engine failures. Most of them were fuel-related in one way or another. And the, the first case was back in college, I was delivering airplanes, and you just, at the time, pull back, and if the houses get smaller, then you're, you're flying. Hmm. 
it didn't really matter as far as qualifications go. I was delivering airplanes and I didn't know anything about that particular airplane. It was an air coupe. And I could see that it had a feeder tank and a cork and a wire, like on a J3 cup. Right. And that's your good fuel gauge. And that's going down, but I got two full wing tanks that should be putting gas in there. And that's not happening. And I was following the road. My plan was, if the engine failed, to be landing on this particular road. And all that was great until the engine quit and there was a little town right in front of me. On the road. <laughs> and there was time to make a 90 degree turn and another 90 degree turn and I was on the ground. Wow. And it turned out, I knew there was an airport over there somewhere. It turned out I was on final, 100 yards short of the runway. Wow. Had I seen it, I might have tried to go for it, but mm -hmm. it's a good thing I didn't because I wouldn't have made it and it was up on a plateau anyway. And the problem was there was a fuel valve behind the seat, inaccessible in flight, that was supposed to be safety wired on, and it wasn't. Wow. So if you're going to fly another airplane, know something about the fuel system. And the other situation was the Skybolt that I had built and had a 300 horsepower engine and took off at a very steep climb, which was the fortunate thing. Uh, Everything had been fine on the airplane for many flights, and in this particular case, at 500 feet, the engine just quit. Boom, it's gone. And I made an immediate turn, and there was a diagonal runway that I was able to land on the grass strip. And just as the prop was about to stop, it started again. And I said a few words to it, and we taxied back to the hangar, and I took the whole fuel system apart, and it was basically some air had gotten into the line enough to cavitate the whole system. Wow. So, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about, you know, where you're always looking for that place to land, doesn't matter where you are, and you have to commit. And there isn't any time when you're flying and you have an emergency to be thinking about what may happen because you've already thought about it a hundred times. You're always thinking about, well, if that engine should cough, this is where I'm going to go. If it's flying in a congested area at night, for example, there's only two things that are going to be dark. One is water and the other is going to be mountains. And I'd rather go into the water than I would in the mountains. So these are things, again, that you have to have already thought about ahead of time. But it's, uh, hmm. it's always been an interesting situation. Wow. I want to point out the body language. We're talking about emergencies, and we have a pair of very seasoned pilots in front of us. And the, the eyes are watering, the voices are wavering. This is always scary stuff. It doesn't matter if you're new to aviation or you've been around a million years. Everybody is afraid of the next thing that's going to happen that's going to make them think, oh, man, is this going to be the last thing I ever see, right? And it doesn't matter. I, I can see it in every veteran's tales, and I can see it in... New Neovites tales as well. When you're new to it, it's just as scary as when it's your last date. Yeah, they're talking and I'm like tensing up over here. <laughs> yeah, no, my chair is creaking, I think, underneath yeah. me with these stories. So, Travis, how about you? Well, my last emergency, let's just go to that one. Um, we bought a new airplane just recently, my wife and I, and it's a very old airplane. It was built in 1942, and it's been modified many times since it was built. It's an old radial engine Beach 18. Um, officially a C-45, but uh, we uh, 
put it back into service. It had been sitting for about five years uh, out of service. Before that, it was on program maintenance. It was doing Navy contract flying. And before that, it belonged to somebody else, belonged to somebody else, and the government operated it um, incognito for quite a while. And before that, it was in the Army. So it's uh, a really unique airplane, and it has a great history, but it's been sitting out in the desert uh, granted, some of it's indoors, some of it's outdoors, but a museum had a hold of it, and they were doing uh, what they called the long annual program, which is about a three-year long annual, which is not really enough to be considered program maintenance, in my opinion. I th I'm sure Tamara can vouch for that. So uh, we did a lot of work, and we actually did an annual inspection on the airplane, and we got it up and running, and we flew it uh, and ran it and flew it and ran it, and finally we brought it all the way from California back to Texas, where we are, where uh, my company has its base. And uh, we flew it around a little bit, and then we decided we're going to go to Oshkosh, right? Because where the heck, my family hasn't had a flyable airplane in like for longer than two weeks in more than six years, right? And so we got Oshkosh. Our son wants to go to Oshkosh. We want to go to Oshkosh. We load up, throw everything in there. We have enough fuel to go there and back and still load, you know, the barbecue and everything else with us. So we're cruising along, and we're almost there, and the field goes IFR. And so I'm thinking, man, I'm 40 minutes from there. I just passed my first planned diversion airport. I'm going to go up and see because in 40 minutes, the airport may reopen. Let's go take a look at it. So we're coming down. There's clouds. We're VFR. Um, my wife and I are both professional pilots, and we spend our time in the professional uh, sphere of aviation. Um, and... I had decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to grassroots. I'm going to fly at 10.5 with no radio communications whatsoever. I'm not going to do ATC. I'm just going to sit back and cruise and watch the clouds go by because this is my vacation and I don't want to deal with it. So you don't have to operate in the system. Private pilots, there's a million people at Oshkosh who got there without speaking on the radio once. And that's great, I think. This is one of the beauties of our country and the, the ability for us to be able to do this. Um, Professionally, yeah, we have to operate in the IFR world and we have to talk to everybody and we have to dot the I's and cross the T's, but vacation is vacation. So here we are cruising along. And in the descent, uh, I'm ducking and weaving around some, some towering cumulus. And all of a sudden, my left engine starts revving. And I'm thinking, oh, well, boy, that prop governor sure is acting up right now, right? And so I'm looking at my power settings and I'm adjusting and we're weaving around the clouds and my son's turning a little bit the wrong shade of color and and so I'm trying to be mindful of my passengers and and uh, where I'm going and I know there's a million airplanes in the sky so I got some real traffic to concern myself with in other words the workload all of a sudden has gone from hey I'm cruising I'm listening to the ATIS to you know wow this is really complicated and then the engine starts giving me fits well I'm sitting there thinking man that the tachometer is revving back and forth and what am I going to do with this so I, I pull the power off on that engine, and I'm like, it behaves itself. I said, okay. So I continue my descent, still shooting the clouds, trying to find uh, the bases. And I come out the bottom, and the engine just quits. And I'm like, what the heck is going on with this engine? And I said, you know what? I don't have time to deal with it. i got to load shed something here. I've got too many things going on. So I feathered the engine. And then I thought, hmm, should I call somebody? And then I thought, well, I have guard dialed in, but who's going to help me, right? And that's when I threw the idea out the window. No reason to declare it, because nobody knows who I am, where I am, or what I'm doing, right? So 
Then the next thing I'm doing, I've secured the engine, I'm looking at my cabin, everything's okay, seat belts are on, we're going to find an airport. And so then the nearest button comes out on the GPS. I've got two feet on the right rudder pedal and I'm, I've trimmed everything to the stop. The trim tab's on the left rudder, which isn't helping when the left engine shut down. So now I'm fighting the good fight. And I can't find an airport that has more than 2,800 feet of runway in front of me. And it's just one of those days where I'm like, man, can a guy catch a break? I just wanted to be on vacation. My margarita machine's waiting at Oshkosh, and now I'm here. So anyway, we ended up diverting uh, and having an uneventful landing at an airport that had just opened that very day. So we touched down on a runway with no paint marks or anything else, and uh, it was completely uneventful. And uh, what I want to attest to it is that the first thing in my mind was just fly the plane, work the problem and fly the plane. And everything that I hear about successful outcomes typically is people not getting distracted by the million things that are going on there. Qantas had a flight uh, in the, the Asian realm uh, a while back in a 380 and they blew their number two engine. And it basically crippled the airplane. And they got so involved working the problem that they kind of forgot to fly the plane. And finally, an observer, there were, my understanding was five people in the cockpit. One of them in the very back, the lowest guy on the totem pole rank-wise said, we're gonna run out of gas in CG because we can't transfer our fuel forward out of the tail. And all of a sudden, everybody stopped and said, holy smokes, he's right. We have to land now. Somebody needs to be flying the airplane. We can't just focus on only the problem at hand. Is that engine behaving itself? No, it's not but what am I gonna do after I cage it? I need to do something else, right? Need to get the airplane on the ground. Do I need to worry about communicating with some tower somewhere who's gonna answer my guard call? Well, maybe, but I'd rather find a place to land than worry about getting on the telephone with somebody, right? That guy can't help me in my situation, so I need to help me. I have to fly the plane to the ground and find a safe conclusion for my event, whatever it happens to be. So did you, in the OSH trip, did you declare an emergency? I did not. And you're, but you also had a seasoned professional pilot sitting right seat with you, right? Uh, no, she was in the back. Oh, she was in the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a great, she took great pictures of it while it happened. So Oh, we'll have know, to have those and show them. Um, interesting. Interesting. I, I like to say one other thing about emergencies, and I, I talk about this ad nauseum with clients who pay a lot of money to come see us at our training center, but um, one of my big issues is you get one decision and then you have to live with whatever you decided to do. And whether it's good or bad, now all of a sudden you have this happening. You can't go back. Um, we go to Sully Sullenberger, which is not my favorite example of things, but I will credit him with one of the things that I did. He, I think that he did very well. Once he decided a course of action, he didn't waver from it, right? We're gonna land this plane in the Hudson, the end, right? I'm in an air coop. Oh, look, there's an, a runway over there. Can I make it? And that thought of, can I make it? That's the one that puts everybody in the dirt. We say, oh, there's a perfectly good field there. The airplane's gonna maybe survive, but I'm gonna walk away from this. That's where we're gonna go. We're not gonna stop and change things once we've decided our course of action. And then we live with the results. Uh, ATR 72 crashed in, uh, out of Taipei, I think it was, not that long ago. It was spectacular dash cam footage of the thing clipping a bridge and right. traffic lanes. And one of the big problems in that accident was that they changed their course of action several times. Uh, and then 
nobody flew the plane and no one accepted the fact that they were going to have to uh, land the airplane. Tamara said, I can't hold altitude, we're landing. It doesn't matter what's in front of us, we're going to aim for the runway, follow this until we stop moving, right? Those guys, they refused to accept the reality of the situation, which was we screwed up the good engine and the bad engine isn't going to get us to where we need to go. And instead of finding a place where the airplane could survive, they tried to hold altitude until they ran out of flying speed, right? So sticking with it and accepting the decision that you made and then working through the decision is one of the best pieces of advice I could give anybody. Let me follow on one thing Travis just said. I think it's important in an emergency to understand that saving the airplane is the last priority. The only priority is walking away from it Absolutely. as best you can. So somebody has insurance on the airplane and if they don't it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that you come up with a plan and you do follow through with that. If it means putting it between trees because that's the only thing that's out there, then do that. But make sure that you fly an airplane into the trees if that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Well, good. I really appreciate you guys coming um, today and sharing your wisdom on emergencies. I know I learned a lot. Oh, I, I'm walking away a better pilot because of this discussion. So thanks for watching. And as always, please share, subscribe, and leave comments. And we'll talk to you next time.